Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in beautiful Paradise Island, Bahamas, where I've been enjoying the PokerStars Caribbean adventure. Uh, the feedback from our last episode with Jen Shahadi was extremely positive. I'm so glad you guys are into it. Uh, I feel like Jen and I had a very in-depth conversation, and uh, we got to know a little bit about how her incredible mind works. Uh, I have another special guest this week and uh i mean this guy is uh someone i feel really lucky that he's willing to do the podcast with us he has four million dollars over four million dollars in live poker earnings as well as over four million dollars in online tournament winnings also he is the president and founder of the charity series of poker you know him you love him he sings bass in our quartet (laughs) Matt Stout. Hey, Matt. What's up? <laughs> you have the lowest voice of anyone I've ever interviewed, so you get to sing bass. Is that okay? Why, thank you. <laughs> so, Charity Series of Poker. Nice. So, five or six years ago, you decided you wanted to start... There's only, there was you know, we, we need more something SOPs in the world, so you, you came up with one for C. Yeah, and I, uh, I I almost got sued for it, but we won't get into that story. But, uh, Come on, you can't tease me like that. Who tried to sue you? Who do you think? <laughs> Take a wild guess here. Uh, there were there were definitely some circulating uh, comments that the World Series of Poker may sue me. There wasn't a cease and desist letter per se, but uh, ho- thankfully it never came to that because. Uh, no, I'm a, one of their biggest fan supporters and customers, so it would have been a little ironic for them to sue me over this. Yeah, a little odd. Yeah, I mean, you spend every summer in the, in their establishment. I participated in the World Series of Comedy, oh, WSOC. Yeah. Actually, the same year, I got my first WSOP cash was the year I made the finals of the World Series of Comedy. <laughs> what year was that? Um, I don't know. Maybe 06, 07? I never heard of the World Series of Comedy, which is disappointing to me because um, I've always been a big comedy fan. So if I had heard about that, I would probably have tried to make my way over there. Yeah, yeah. It was in Vegas. It was at the Tuscany Hotel, which is uh, real fancy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> fancy schmancy galore. <laughs> By which I mean it smells like dead cigarettes. Um, so, yeah. Uh, thanks so much for doing the show. I want to hear about your charity series of poker. It sounds like, let me guess, okay, it sounds like a poker series where the money that the players use for the tournament somehow benefits a charitable organization. So when you did that thing with Mensa, (laughs) apparently all those geniuses rubbed off on you, huh? Clayton was just telling me that he uh, spoke at a Mensa conference so he had to kind of tailor his comedy to the situation and the audience <laughs> had to come in like 
humbly tell him how stupid he was and like you know pump those guys up real quick so yeah apparently it picked up some things from the geniuses yeah <laughs> so i was right oh yeah yeah so how does it work how it works we'll get into the backstory later but how it works now the general model is that we're doing like uh, an hour and a half or two hour open bar pre-party with heavy hors d'oeuvres that leads up to a reasonably priced usually like 200 to 500 dollar buy-in tournament that has rebuys add-ons or re-entries we usually do a silent auction we have some fairly big prizes, whether it's a World Poker Tour Borgata seat for the winner of our upcoming event, January 26th, the Borgata, or a 10K main event seat for some of our bigger events, like the March 2nd event in Vegas. Both of them are for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So we kind of set them up to be as effective as possible, try to, you know, have make sure everyone has a good time, but make sure that the majority of the money ends up going to a really good cause and that we get to have a really good time for the right kind of organization that deserves the support. Yeah, well, you know, I really wanted to get you on the show, Matt, because, I mean, obviously you're a very, very accomplished and highly respected player, but I love stories where I find out about poker players that have made a lot of money in the game. And now they want to do something good with it. And uh, so did you always like in the back of your mind when you were starting to climb up the ranks in the poker world, did you think to yourself, if I ever had a lot of money, I'd try to find a way to give back to the world? Or is that something that that kind of came to you later? It was actually the other way around. I I was already the vice president of Habitat for Humanity when I was 19 in college and ran my first charity tournament then in wow. the dorms. At so, 19? Yeah. So, and it kind of goes back further than that in that sort of the fast forward boiled down version of the story is that my brother managed to get into Johns Hopkins. My parents somehow found a way to get enough loans and financial aid and scholarships together to make it possible for him to go. He was sort of like the main positive influence in my life. And I was sort of a troubled youth, I guess you would say (laughs) at that, uh, at that point when my brother got into Hopkins and I was just like, Holy crap. Did like, did he really just get into Johns Hopkins? And what's the uh, age difference between years older than me? So so this was my sophomore year. Um, and I, I was making sure that I passed. I was on the hockey team. I was selling weed. I was, I was doing a lot of different things. (laughs) I was chasing girls. I was, Balancing everything and making everything work well enough for me to pass my classes, but I wasn't taking school nearly as seriously as I should. And, um, yeah, so I had one brother who was certainly not an example and was selling me weed and acid when I was 12 years old, which is probably not a great thing to do. No. To your brother who's when you're seven years older and 19. Wow. But, um, so you did acid at age 12? We'll get back to that. Okay. Uh, you bought some. We, we're getting a little sidetracked. <laughs> okay, no, I. We're in the marketplace. Okay, right, right, right. But th- this is a uh, this is a, a, a sidetrack avenue that uh, is kind of tempting me to go down. <laughs> All right. Um. So whatever, we'll we'll get back to that. Pretty okay. Quickly. All right. Table that for now. Table. <laughs> so, my brother, like I was definitely. I, I was getting myself in a lot of trouble. I think I'd already been arrested once. 
I didn't know this, but my uh, they were already planning. My uncle's a was a sergeant for the nearby uh, prison. So if I didn't, if I kept going down the path I was going down, my parents were planning on having my own uncle arrest me just to just to prove a point. Wow, it's going to be great. That's salt in the wound. Uh, so, anywho, uh, <laughs> anywho, my brother getting into Hopkins sort of got me to reevaluate my life. Want to uh, do a little something more than go to like Jersey City Community College after I graduated, and it definitely was a huge turning point in my life. That sounds a little bit like a, a form of competition in itself, right? It's like you course. look up to your brother, but also like you don't want it, him to be successful of and course. you're not. Yeah, I'm one of the most competitive people I've ever met. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Are you the guy that like gets in fights when you play like Monopoly or something? Uh, <laughs> I, I cannot confirm nor deny these accusations. You lost friends over a community chest card? I don't know what you're talking about, but yes, I can name a few. <laughs> it was something that kind of stuck with me and led to me getting involved with my own chapter of Habitat at the College of New Jersey. And I ended up being the vice president. We were trying to figure out how to raise funds. And I was like, hey, let's run a poker tournament. Yeah, because you already knew about poker by that time. You were playing, what, like online and stuff? Right. So this was right after Moneymaker won the main event. It was on ESPN several hours a day. Poker was hot, to say the least. Poker was, it was the heyday. It was as it was blowing up. And everyone on campus wanted to run a game. And I... When I couldn't get enough playing every game on campus, started playing online, mm-hmm. and it kind of took over my life. And uh, <laughs> so we ended up running a ten dollar rebuy tournament where we raised about a thousand dollars for our campus chapter of Habitat. That's um, pretty good. Of, when you're yeah. trying to extract cash from broke college, from college kids, yeah, that, that's gonna say yeah. that's a pretty good number. Yeah, man. I got a co- I got a company to donate like a flat screen TV and a couple other cool prizes for the top three. I think we had five or six tables. And- so this is interesting to me because you're a self-described introvert, right? But I, it seems to me like when you need to go talk to somebody and ask for something. You're not afraid to do that if it's not for you. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'm definitely, there's some strong irony in that because if I need something for the charity, I feel like people want to do it. People want to get involved. And that's why I started the charity series of poker. Like I saw all the willingness to, to give in the poker community and the people that would support these type of things. But when there were poker events, there were these one-offs. They weren't marketed well. You didn't uh, you didn't know the cause. You didn't know the people running it. You didn't know who was spending how much on what kind of admin and how much was actually making it. Going to the charity, yeah. Yeah, and not to mention, you also need someone to vet these charities that they're going to because even after the money gets to the charity, you want it to go to an effective organization that's spending the money well. So I kind of stepped into take they they all take really good care of us so that then they're behind us with our mission and they want to help us run an effective event they which they have to cover their costs in most cases and you know kind of show the bottom line to their higher ups but they get that we're bringing in some fairly big poker players and they're going to make ancillary revenue off the hotel the restaurants gaming 
So they they see the value there, and they know that they're going to be listed as a sponsor. We're going to put them on the step and repeat. We're going to tweet out thanking them for being a sponsor of the event, for doing the things that they do to help us cut the cost. So... Well, I hear Phil Helmuth has raised $53 million single-handedly. (laughs) (laughs) Tell people if they haven't heard this whole story. You tweeted, uh, thank you to Phil. And then why why does everything have to turn so ugly so fast on Twitter? What is it about Twitter that makes people so horrible? I mean, there's always <laughs> trolls lurking under every bridge, right? Twitter's no different. Yeah, but give us the background. So, so you said something like, by the way, thanks, Phil, for supporting. So right. during the whirlwind that was December 2018 for me, where my first child was born and my first charity event for an NHL team went down on the same day, and then four days later was my birthday, and then two days after that I was on Friday Night Poker for the first time. There's just like an amazing but very stressful and crazy transitional phase for me. Um, I and Negron, uh, help me stop by the Poker Go studio during that game and kind of surprised me by congratulating me on fatherhood, giving me two grand for charity series of poker, and then leaving. Just like, handed you $2,000. Yeah. Here's for your charity. Good yeah. job. Congrats. Yeah. He's like, congrats. I, like, I heard you were going to be on the show today. So I, I didn't get a chance to make it over to a charity event the other night, but I wanted to give you this two grand. Wow. Like, I, it's, and he's obviously a very controversial figure in poker and he's designed himself to be that way. He he's has. the poker, a poker brat for a reason. And there's definitely controversy behind the fact that he takes a $25,000 appearance fee for some of the charity events that he does. Typically, it's only events that he has to travel for and spend the weekend at a place. He does a lot of them for nothing. Yeah, the ones in Vegas he does for free. I think he tweeted out a figure where it was like 65% of them he charges a 25k fee and 35% of them Mostly when they're in Vegas, he does those for free. And that uh, his corporate appearance fee is like $50,000 a day. So he's kind of doing it for half price and helping these people with the model of their charity events. So um, people like Phil Helmuth, their time is very valuable. It's, It's hard for him to say yes to every charity that comes to him. So even with me, like I'm nobody and I get hit up by tons of organizations that Google about charity and poker. They see charity series of poker. They want to run a charity series of poker event. They're like, how can I run a charity series of poker event? I'm like, well, you, uh, you can't, uh, like it's my thing (laughs) and I don't have time and I don't have the energy. I tweeted out during a sit and go we were playing together because he had tweeted a photo of me, him, North, Norm McDonald, you, and uh, my friend James Gilbert playing a 1K sit and go together. So I tweeted something along the lines of belated shout out to Phil Helmuth for dropping by the Poker Go studio last month to congratulate me on fatherhood and donate 2K to the CSOP. Which he did in a non public way. And then you were tweeting in a more public way to give him credit. Um, well, it was on the, the streamed show on Facebook Live. It was on Friday Night Poker. Oh, okay. So he, he came on while the cameras were on. Yeah. yeah. 
which is definitely more what I think of as a Helmuthian move. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But, but still, say what you will about him. Like, but uh, the whole point of the tweet was like, say what you will about Phil, but he's. I should have said help race. That is the more proper terminology of it. But he's raised over fifty million for charity uh, with poker and represents the game well. Which I think is true. Um, and like I said, if, if I had phrased it as help raise, it would definitely be a hundred percent true. He's, he claims, and I believe him, that the gross raise of all the charity poker events he's been involved with lifetime is 54 million or so. Well, what? He won the main event in like 89 or something. So yeah. Yeah. So I mean, he's been a, a name that poker people recognize for all these years 30 years right so uh i believe that he's probably you know been a part of raising that much money not that he did it personally of course but yeah i mean the point is you were trying to give phil credit for being a good guy and to say thank you because he did he ended up hanging out with us. I think it was because he loves Norm MacDonald. <laughs> so we did the comedy show the other night. And then afterwards, there was kind of an after party. And we all ended up going out uh, you know, to dinner. And then the next day, there's a sit and go. And there's a, there's a lot of Norm MacDonald. Whatever Norm wants to do, that's what we all did. Because he's the biggest star in the room. I think even, even Phil Helmuth would agree with that. People were lobbying for 15 minute levels in the one case sit and go. I was like, what does Norm want to do? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, someone like that is going to come out and help us do something for the name of poker to do a comedy show like that. And it, it's really cool. I mean, when we have, you know, some legit guys coming out or really good comedians, it's good for poker and it's good for us at the same time. Like, like, yeah, we're going to show those guys a good time. If those guys want to play a 1K sit and go, I haven't played a 1K sit and go in years. I don't play no limit, let alone <laughs> playing sit and goes. Like, but like Norm's like dying to get these 1K sit and goes off. Like, Norm, I will hop in your sit and go for you but happily. Like, yeah. I, I grew up watching you on Saturday Night Live and watching you in stand up. And like, you've been one of the funniest people of our generation. Yeah. I'll, yeah. Uh, I'll put together some 1K sit and go for you. I think I can, it's the least I can do. If you're going to come down to the Bahamas, entertain us with your comedy, you know, help workshop these ideas with other comedians. That was the other really cool thing is that, um, I'll tell the viewers, you obviously know this already, Clayton. Um, (laughs) Stapes hooked me up and got me backstage in the green room with the comedians when they were prepping for the show. And then I got to hang out with all of them to like the backside of the stage area where they all watch the performance from. So it was interesting to me because I'm planning on doing a stand up set eventually. Breaking news, you guys. This is a, (laughs) this is a hot lead. I got a scoop here. (laughs) <laughs> and uh that was one of the motivating things for me about seeing them do this uh, this show at PCA and I was like, well, if they're going to do that every year, that kind of be my motivator to put together a set and have something ready by next year when we come down for this event. And I thought that it would be something that would make it easier if I had my friends there and everything and I was kind of shocked to see that you guys were kind of nervous to perform in front of people you know in the poker community and people that are your friends. And To me, it was one of the biggest shows of my life because <laughs> I, I care what the poker world 
thinks about me. You know, I mean, I have this podcast. Um, I'm trying to get ahead in poker. You know, I do some commentary. Like, this is part of my career. And if everybody's like, oh, yeah, that guy that tells everybody he's a comedian, he's not funny at all. <laughs> you know, how fast that news would travel if I bombed, you know. So uh, that was a very important show in my career. So I was way more nervous for that show than I've been for a show in a long time. And likewise, Norm was worried that the whole room would be poker players. Like normally when you do comedy, like this table's a bachelorette party, that's a family, they're a couple on a first date, you know, whatever. It's like a, a wide range of, of people. And this was a, a very, I mean, in a, in a way it was a homogenous audience. So anyway, I want to get back to Phil because this was a big story. Um, Phil Helmuth was hanging with us, uh, maybe a little bit more than he otherwise might have because he loves Norm and Norm loves him. And it wasn't there for us. Clay. Yeah, I didn't I think it was because it of me. But, you know, that said, he was <laughs> a perfect gentleman. He's not the guy. If you've only ever seen Phil on TV, he's not that guy when the cameras are off. He's different. He's he he's he has a, an on-camera persona, this poker brat thing that he does. I mean, the regular Phil Helmuth is actually a really nice guy. But he's also a person that wants people to like him. And I think it really bothered him when people started criticizing your tweet about hey he's raised money for charity you, you didn't mean it in a literal sense but he's been a big part of poker charity events his whole career yeah and he's a big driving force in the fact that it's one of if not the biggest fundraiser for charity in general it so. is number one it's surpassed golf now uh, somebody did a study on that and poker has now surpassed golf as like the the big uh, money maker for charities because everybody can play poker. Not everybody can play golf. You know. Now, uh, if people want to get involved, they can come to Borgata on Saturday, January twenty sixth, where we're going to have. I'll be there. Uh, I'm sure that's going to get a lot of butts in the seat. <laughs> uh, now, I'm going to just come and hang out and, and check out the the event. I've never gone to one of your events before. I'm real excited uh, to to see what it's like. Um, but there's going to be a tournament, and is that like the day before the main event? Is that the timing or is it yep so it's the night before their world poker tour 3500 main event which is one of their biggest or one of their two biggest events of the year so i think that's and if you win k up top and so. if you win the if you win the the charity event you get to play in the in the borgata event as well is that the prize yep so you can come and buy in for 220 dollars have open bar and food with live music and clayton if he decides to you know, roast you while you're playing the tournament. <laughs> um, <laughs> you suck. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he'll be on the mic having a little fun with everyone. So you can pay, uh, pay 220. The net proceeds go to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and then the winner will take home a 3500 World Poker Tour main event seat, a 500 seat to our St. Jude event for in Vegas on March 2nd, which is the one that Daniel Negreanu founded, and then they also get a $300 reception ticket to bring in. That's guests. not bad. Not bad at all. So, if they can't attend the event on the 26th, uh, can they donate directly? Do they have to find you when you're playing poker on TV and hand you $2,000 in cash? <laughs> no, there, there are other ways to go about it. Uh, 
We uh, we're in the process of setting up the event website right now, where we'll have the silent auction and also the uh, option to just uh, just donate. You can keep up with all our all of our events by following us on Twitter at the CSOP and on Facebook Charity Series of Poker, and then charityseriesofpoker.org is our website. Great. Well, when you get that set up on um, the event page, uh, let us know. We'll tweet it out as well as we get the word out. Cool. And we'll try to get some more of our uh, listeners to come. I think most of you guys can afford a $220 uh, buy-in. So if you live anywhere near Borgata in Atlantic City, New Jersey, come on out. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be a wonderful event. And somebody gets to play in the big one uh, the next day, which will be very cool as well. All right. So let's get back to uh, acid when you're 12 years old. I don't believe in segues. Can you tell? <laughs> that's like that's like Carlin. I was just thinking, like, as I developed my plan for doing stand-up material, it's like I don't do tra- transitional material, and I don't believe in this or that. Like, yeah. I love it. Yeah, we just jump topics. I actually don't believe, like, when I'm doing my stand-up, I don't ever explain to the audience why I've started talking about something else. Well, one thing I wanted to say before we talk about acid, um, the <laughs> the. The overwhelming response for the comedy show uh, here at the PCA was everybody really had a great time. They, they thought it was wonderful. But the second most common comment I'm getting is poker players come up to me saying, I'd like to try it sometime. Now, this doesn't happen when I'm backstage at a comedy show and I'm telling people how I played against the best in the world in the World Series of Poker. No one has ever says, I want to try that. <laughs> so I wonder what it is. Like, poker players want to try comedy, but comedians don't generally want to try poker. What do you think that is? I feel like there's something to the fact that a lot of people deep down want to go out and try to make people laugh. It's just so intimidating. Yeah. And friggin' you people talking about how difficult it is and how much it sucks bombing. You just intimidate <laughs> all of us with all your goddamn <laughs> stories. You scared us half to death. Yeah. Well, just... I don't want people to think it's a walk in the park because it's not. I mean, it's a very hard thing to do. Yeah, I'm, I didn't expect it to be, but the, the fact that I saw Norm looked so nervous. He was pacing backstage. Yeah, he, he was, was really freaking out. Yeah. But no, I mean, honestly, it was a very memorable night. I'll never forget uh, that night. And I hope that it, it can start more of a relationship between comedy and poker. Yeah, for sure. I wish we had more comedy shows on the tour. It's always been a huge thing for me. And I think it's just something it's really good for most people to kind of let loose. It's few people are going to say, no, I never want to go to a comedy club. Like that always <laughs> sounds like, like who, who what kind of, what kind of, Bah humbug yeah. girl loser is going to be like, oh, you guys want to go to a comedy club tonight? That sounds awful. Well, some nights I Let's go out there. Let's not go laugh. Who <laughs> wants to laugh? Some nights I, I, I want to frown. The show and Let's I see, go somewhere and frown together. You see, you're being sarcastic, but I'll, I'll look in the audience and there'll be like a group of four where three of them are all gung ho to be there. And one of them just looks miserable. And I'm like, why is that guy even here? He just there rolls his eyes and arms every crossed, joke you rolling made. his eyes. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I can't say that everyone should enjoy comedy, but I, I really don't understand the people who actively don't want to laugh. Like, laughter is so important. Like, I measure, like, my life in laughter. I don't really understand why people could not, could not want to laugh and just blow off steam, you know, enjoy the show. Anyway, it was fun having you backstage because, uh, 
it was just, it was cool to see you kind of seeing how it all works. And, you know, just, and we had some other, um, some of the poker stars pros got like backstage passes or whatever as well. And, uh, it was a good time. So, uh, I, as I said, no transitions, but you're, you have two brothers and one of them decided when you were 12, it was time for you to try acid. What was that like? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> how it went down. He administered it. I take no responsibility it's your time. whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was sort of a weird thing. Like I, I had the one brother, like I said, is two years older than me. That was a big positive influence in my life. And then I had, one brother who was just a complete idiot and uh he he started selling me acid even a little bit younger than that i think he let me smoke the first time when i was 10 years old wow and then i was around yeah it was definitely 12 because it was when i was still in eighth grade and he was working as like an assistant to some um, Wall Street guys. So he had access to tons of weed and coke and acid. And he got himself hooked on coke, but was telling me, as he sold me weed and acid when I was 12, that if he ever saw me touch coke, that he would break my hand. And I was like, I guess that's a pretty powerful statement. And it's really ironic to have someone who's doing so many dumb things he shouldn't do also be like go out of his way to be like coke is bad yeah this here's other, your weed and your acid right but this other dumb thing is off limits yeah yeah i mean so there's there's some level of truth i guess to to some of what people are saying in studies and reports about the effects of psychedelics on depression though so i kind of i had a really really rough traumatic childhood in multiple ways and like i'm not looking for sympathy sympathy in saying that like i it made me who i am and i'm glad that it happened because i i like who i am now i love the path that i'm on i think it's one of the things that motivated me to not just be a victim going forward but um, but it sounds like you were a victim. Well, for sure. Um, and it, like realizing a lot of the things that had happened to me and not dealing with them properly led to me being suicidal when I was like 10 to 12 years old and didn't have any attempts, but constantly thought about it and wanted to do it. And like, so there was, that's obviously the reason that when I had the opportunity to take acid, I was like, sure. I mean, um, <laughs> I need an escape. So, yeah. uh, and I think it, there's some interesting aspects to the way that it changes the way you view the world and kind of, that it re- it, yeah, it rewires some of the neural networking of your brain and can really change the way that severely depressed people feel forever like they don't have to keep taking acid they don't have to keep taking these drugs to have the effects like permanent which i think there may have been some level of that for me because i i dabbled with it like on and off uh, a lot throughout high school as well as doing some ecstasy and stuff and the ironic thing is by the time i was 17 years old and got into college and 
was living in college, I was like, all right, now it's time to calm down and like just smoke and like, you know, stay off of everything else and try to try to get back on the right path now that I managed to get into college despite screwing around the first two years. I, I turned around my grades. That was the other part of the earlier stories that I kind of like, once my brother got into Johns Hopkins, I started getting straight A's. I did a bunch of um, AP classes and got college credits before I got it. Uh, got it was a college. real wake up call for you. It was you, for yeah. sure, and it was just like that was for sure the turning point in my life. It was like I was really headed down the wrong path, and um, I'd already been arrested once. I was likely to get arrested again. Uh, I know for a fact that one of my friends would got caught with weed. Uh, that wasn't even related to me, and the cops were like, "Did you get this from Matt Stout?" So, you know, I wow. wasn't I wasn't exactly <laughs> doing what I should be doing in right. high school. Um, shout out to the Bayonne PD for not coming after me, but uh, anyway, <laughs> but I I was really kind of like that was a big transitional point in my life, and I kind of had to. Um, get myself to stop self-medicating to that extent. You wanted and, to clean up your act and try to get on the right path. Right. And that's sort of kind of the motivation behind CSOP was partly this, you know, I have this overachiever in me. So like, and it was partly fueled from that is that I had this fierce determination to not be a victim of my circumstances and my upbringing and traumas and childhood and things like that. So there was also that determination that I was going to succeed in spite of everything that happened to me. So that's why just to be at this point in my life now where I'm 34 and I can reflect on like a career of you know, a lot of near misses on some big titles that I wanted, but like I have yeah, sure. several million in winnings, a couple million plus in profit. And like, I get to reflect on a career where I've not only been able to play a game that I love for a living, but able to uh, have also been able to take that game and turn it into something positive because it is still a zero sum predatory game. And I only can get so far in feeling accomplished and feeling satisfied in what I'm doing when I'm playing selfishly in every tournament. But when it's, when I'm working toward goals with CSOP, it's so much more motivating to me and it means a lot more to me. And it's something that no one can take away. Like, we won the charitable initiative of the year American poker award a few years back. And that meant more to me than any bracelet ever could. People are behind you and what you're doing. Um, I'm trying to have a conversation with you the other day in the hallway and you just wanted to go to the pool and relax here in the Bahamas. And everybody who walks by like, Hey Matt, they're giving me a fist. <laughs> I mean, we can't even get through two sentences without people wanting to like show you some love. And I mean, that must feel really good, especially you know, considering how your life could have gone and ended very, very early before any of this. Would you say that at one point you had a drug problem um, I, well, first of all, I'm glad that I didn't have uh, unlimited access to it. 
I think my brother realized how much I liked it in high school. Yeah. <laughs> kind of decided, ah, maybe I shouldn't give him a sheet or two of it. But yeah. um, it is fun challenging people at the table to do a 10-strip acid when they uh, are being tough guy-ish. Like, oh, why don't you want a drink? Uh, hey, how would you handle 10 hits of LSD? They're like, I fold. I never understood. Like, <laughs> I never understood the idea of that your manhood is somehow tied to how much poison you're willing oh, to consume. It's, it's so absurd, and that's why I hate love. I love just going off the wall with that reply yeah. uh, when people are being obnoxious at the and table. It's all in. Why the stories the sometimes yeah. come out? Right. Come out. It's not like I'm really right. going to go do a ten strip right no. now. I uh, I have a slightly different life now. I have a baby. I have a fiance to look after it's definitely a different chapter of my life yeah you uh, could say it's a new chapter for (laughs) sure yeah you're not in that old chapter anymore yeah so um yeah it definitely could have gone down a very different path and it's it's kind of awesome because you know now Dang Underground is on my board of directors because he asked me to take over his annual St. Jude charity event, and I'm learning a lot about the St. Jude best practices as well as sharing with with them what I've learned across all my other events, and I'm really working on optimizing best practices for these charity poker tournaments, whether you're doing like a a smallish event where we're doing just the pre-party or turning into more of a dinner event gala type thing, Um, and now the money we raise for the charity series of poker after we're done paying all of our expenses for the year i'm going to donate net proceeds after that to some effective altruism causes so that we can help everybody you know like we're going to be doing the events that we're doing in the united states for the causes that we choose here and the the organizations that are effective enough for what they're doing in the u.s but then also try to do what we can for some other organizations that are doing really great work abroad and doing things at a much lower cost than we possibly could with the cost of things in the United States. Well, one thing that comes as a result of that, and uh, this is something that I've done a lot of research on, uh, happiness seems to come from helping other people. The, all the research they do, the drugs you can take... The money you could win playing the lottery or even the World Series of Poker, uh, all the things that we think you know, the, you know, for maybe like the touchdowns you could score, the girls you could end up having sex with, the thing that makes people the most happy for the longest amount of time is feeling like you're helping other people. Absolutely, and that's where true happiness comes from. And the best way to battle depression, <laughs> if there's anyone listening that's struggling with depression as it sounds like perhaps matt here was at, at one point perhaps <laughs> maybe turning, <laughs> turning your life around by saying you know I'm, I'm now on a mission to help other people uh is a very effective way to get happy yourself so for sure and in that vein as well there's i forgot the exact term that he used that were uh comparison monkeys or something you're you're always viewing your life comparatively to the people around you and the people you see on instagram and the people you see on facebook yeah turn that stuff off yeah it's i mean it's fine if you know how to go about it like i want to be on facebook to keep in touch with my family and see their posts because i'm not going to call them every week and you know but you don't want to just lose touch with who they are three years down the road you want 
there is valuable information and exchanges to be had there. I'll give you that. Uh, Just turn off notifications. Oh, yeah. I turned <laughs> off notifications a long time yeah. ago, and my phone's usually on silent. That's, yeah, I love that's that. That's for sure. But, no, but even even the what we do do of reading and watching and scrolling through our timelines, we're going to see people at their happiness. Most people are not going to be posting when they're depressed. They're not going to post about how shitty their day was, thankfully, in a lot of cases. But if everyone was just very honestly telling you how their day was or how their life's going in comparison to how they thought it would be going or they wanted to be going, you'd feel pretty good about yourself. Of course, yeah. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but people are usually posting the highlight reel. Now you're comparing your life and your day-to-day to a highlight reel. So you're comparing your reality to somebody else's fiction. Right. Yeah, that's not healthy. It's not healthy at all. So Don't do that. It's not only don't do that, but my point is that you can do the exact opposite of that by going out and volunteering with one of your favorite organizations, helping people that are less fortunate than you. Like if you take a bad beat for 2 grand in a 510 game, and then you go volunteer at a homeless youth shelter and see a 16-year-old kid who was thrown out of his house because he's gay. And now he's living on the streets and he's still relatively happy with his situation. Seems to be, you know, having fun with the people that he lives with. Like, seems like a normal kid. Doesn't seem traumatized by it. You're like, was I really annoyed by that bad beat? Like... <laughs> a little perspective is healthy for sure. every now and then yeah um matt can i ask you have you ever talked about this stuff we've been discussing publicly before no not at all um i'm planning on doing it more and i was already sort of pushing myself to try to blog about it because i want to help other people that have been through a lot of the same things and, and maybe you feel like opening up a little bit for sure and i this was a good push because, you know, you're planning on helping us out with CSOP events. You wanted me after I told you some of my experiences. You're like, will you talk about this on the podcast? I was like, I don't know. Um, but then in, I mean, it was something that I think that can help other people. And if talking about my experiences can help someone else, then I'm more than happy to kind of share it because I've already dealt with all of my traumas i've been to therapy i've you know kind of done everything that i need to do to be happy with who i am uh, well you so, know i think it, it kind of goes to what you were saying about instagram you know uh in a way because you know what, what we see is oh there's matt he's he lost a lot of weight, right? He's he's got a wife now. He's got a kid. And he's, she's stupid hot. He's, he's, he's she's beautiful, <laughs> absolutely beautiful. Uh, he's got eight million dollars in earnings, you know. Uh, and that would be like the Instagram version. And then the reality is, yeah, that all that stuff is true. But also, what's true is there have been some real, and I mean real, struggles along the way that you probably wouldn't have posted on Instagram. <laughs> no, and thank God, because you guys do not want to read about these experiences. <laughs> so there, there's definitely a level of that to it as well, where you know, we should all be a little bit more real and not just kind of sugarcoat everything. And You know, I compared it a little bit with Greg Merson, who's 
another success story that you know had a real problem and now people really look up to him even more because it's not only what he accomplished but it's also what he overcame and so i i appreciate you sharing you know more of your story with me than you have with others and i think it's a great idea for you to continue to do that yeah for sure i appreciate that and i appreciate you kind of pushing me to do it how much more time do we have um, yeah, well, I I know we we went a little long, but they would kill me if I don't at least I can't have Matt Stout on the poker podcast and not talk at least about one hand that you played at the PCA. Oh, that too. <laughs> I was going to talk more about the Helmut thing because people kind of went off on. Yeah, let's do that too. If you have time, I have time. All right. So Phil charged twenty five k for a lot of charity events. People got really really pissed off about it, and it used to bother me before I started to understand a little bit more about it and when you're getting inundated with these requests from a ton of nonprofits, you have to pick and choose and for him his time is so valuable that he could be doing other things with it if he's not doing these events so it's hard for him to commit and I think that these uh, there's a huge ROI on the work that he's doing and that if these companies are spending 25 grand to bring him in for the weekend get his expertise get his people involved in it then it's it's still a net positive for the charity and that people it's a ridiculous thing for people to hate on especially because a lot of these people have not donated any of their time, any of their money to any organizations in God knows how long. They're doing nothing for the world. They're just like the guy in the back of the theater yelling, you suck. Yeah. He's never gotten on stage in his life. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's how you put him in your place. They're like, yeah, keep yelling, you suck while I'm up here doing something you would never dream of doing. You, like, you're just trying to ruin it for everybody else. Like, get up and try it. Yeah. So then that gets into another thing that I'm going to start blogging about now is that when the charity series of poker started, I was doing three events a year as a volunteer side project. I took 20 grand of my own money, 15 grand of friends' money, and spent it to run 12 events over three years annually or four uh, three events four years annually we spent a total of 35 grand and raised three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the beneficiary charities and every dime went straight to the beneficiaries we didn't even recoup costs we were just doing it as wow we're donating and we're gonna help organize these things as effectively as possible and i have these connections to do it i have this organic marketing um and you had other income yeah, and I it wasn't really an issue to put the events together um, when the casinos were a lot more involved. But now, as I'm kind of redeveloping this model, we run our own registration for the events in Vegas. We're doing silent auctions. We we do our we do a ton of work for things like the three square event in vegas three square food bank doesn't do much of the management of that event whatsoever and not only have i been managing that event myself but i've also got the gaming control board to agree to let us take credit cards for registration to take pre-registration wow no, there's, I don't know if people realize how hard that is to get. Uh, there, yeah, like there's uh, 
there's a lot of things, a lot of hoops you have to go through. You have to fill out. Some, so when I first ran my events in Vegas, it was $300 with $100 rebuys. You had to buy in on site the day of the event and everything had to be in cash. Okay. Yeah. So Plan Hollywood had to handle every dollar, every payout. And we not, we didn't even get the list for the event. It wasn't really our event. We were just kind of like marketing it and having the event, having them hold the event for us. Because you weren't licensed as a gambling operator right. at that time. Right. Right. So then over time, we wanted to be able to take credit cards. We wanted to be able to take pre-registration, sell seats online. We wanted to run a silent auction, so starting with our last event last July, I started bringing in GiveSmart, which is an online payment processor, mobile bidding platform, uh, event sites where you can take donations, take registration for events where we can take registration online. We got them involved, and then I had to take their information of the game and control board and not only apply for the uh, event ourselves but and say that we were going to be the ones running it but explain to them who GiveSmart was show them their terms of service our contract with GiveSmart uh, the structure of the event the poker rules that well, the rules we had for the structure of the tournament we poker, Planet Hollywood poker rooms rules I don't know, a million other things, like an event timeline, the, uh, the official application, the the application, a separate one for the 50-50 that we run. And once we jumped through a million hoops with the gaming control board, we were not only able to run event registration ourselves and handle all the money, but we could also take pre-registration online and verify that people are 21 in person the day of the event. Wow. And gaming usually, even after you run your own gaming applications and have your own licenses and permits to run the event, you still can't take pre-registration because they're worried about underage gambling. But once you have sort of a rapport with gaming and they trust that you're running legitimate events... You, then they'll eventually say, okay, we're going to let you take pre-registration. Just make sure that people are 21 when they show up and check in. The so there's a lot of big wins for your organization that a lot of other organizations will never get and haven't been able to get. And they won't. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. All right. We got to get to strategy before I All fall right. asleep. It's getting late. Um, <laughs> I can't, I can't party like a rock star anymore, Matt. I'm not a young man like you. So let's talk about what, what hand do you want to talk about? Yeah. Is it going to be from the 25 K? I think that's the one people want to hear about. Yeah, of course. Everybody's I mean, interested in the poker stars players championship with the 300 platinum pass winners. And even some other players who may not normally play at 25K that decided the value was just too good to pass up. And I'd say at least half the players in this tournament were playing in their first 25K. Is that fair? At least half? Yeah, that sounds right about right. Yeah. Um, Just go through it street by street. Every time it's your decision, we'll talk about what you could have done, what you chose to do, and why. Oh, okay. So, what's the blind levels? Where are we in this tournament? 300, 600. 
So and the blind side started at one one with a one. <laughs> one one with a one. <laughs> so what is that the, gonna the be? The classic one 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 <laughs> blind level. Don't you know? Yeah, with the big blind ante, uh, which we love, of course. So three hundred, six hundred with a six hundred ante, so there's fifteen hundred in the pot. You guys were playing eight handed in that event, right? I believe so, yeah. Okay. So a, I think he was Russian or Eastern European, but either way, he's a presumably decent foreign pro. He opens to fourteen hundred at three hundred, six hundred. Early position, he has about seventy or eighty k. Okay, I have twenty k in the cutoff with Ace Jack off, hmm. and it's a hand where I. I'm usually going to play, especially because this guy has been opening a lot. I expect his range to be fairly wide. And offsuit high card hands just don't play well multi-way. So it's generally going to be a three-better fold hand. Right. and My when stack's you, really awkward for this, too. That's what I was going to say. Like, if you three-bet here, you're going to be almost committed. No, this is going to be one of my three-bet fold hands. Okay. Like, I don't expect him to four-bet that, yeah, okay. that wide. So All if right. I three-bet... Like fourteen to thirty-five or fourteen to four K here with like sixteen K back and he four bets. I'm getting one point five to one. I would still need to be forty-ish percent against his range for it to even be break even, let alone correct to get in. Um so and you don't I'm think gonna, you would be I yeah. wouldn't be again. Yeah. I would I would assume that his four bet range is gonna be pretty tight there and I should be thirty four five-ish percent against that range, so it wouldn't even be break-even chip EV. It would be a pretty easy three-bet fold for me. Ace-Queen would be kind of close, and then Ace-King's obviously just a three-bet get-in. Yeah, fist-pump, love it. Yeah, Yeah. alright, so with the Ace-Jack, we're looking to put in like, if you make it, you said you might raise to 4K? Uh, That's where I was kind of torn, is that this is sort of a shallow enough stack size where the fact that I've been sizing everything a little bit bigger, especially against European players who tend to peel a little bit wide against three bets and not really want to raise fold too often because they find it so exploitable and people do tend to attack and get a little three bet happy and four bet happy, especially in Euro tournaments. So they... Since they peel so wide, I want to size it a little bit bigger, but my stack's also so awkward that I want to keep a little bit more flexibility post-flop. So I decided to make it 2.5x, which is 3,500. I don't love it because I think that he's still going to peel a little bit too wide. I may just want to still go like 4K-ish. But if he peels, that's not the end of the world, right? I mean, you'll be in position. You probably have a range advantage, and now you have a bloated pot. But the problem is... You've got so much of your stack in already, right? That's the issue. Right. Because of your awkward stack size. Yeah, so even as is, he I 3-bet and he flatted, so the pot's 7K plus 1,500, 8,500. Okay. And so we're already looking at a stack-to-pot ratio of 2-ish. Two, yeah. So if you flop a pair, top pair, you, you're never getting away. Right, and I also am going to get in, it's just going to put me in a lot more sticky spots than... Yeah, so what's the uh, game plan here? Now that we've created this pot and this SPR, 
What if we flop a gut shot? Are we gonna? What is your? What are your thoughts before the flop comes? Um. Well, like you said, it's gonna get awkward in a lot of spots. Like <laughs> because of the sack size. Like if we flop an over in a gut shot. Yeah. Like, what are we going to check back and probably have to fold to a bet if we break? Or bet and have to probably call it off if he raises? Like, it's going to get dicey. Yeah, um, your next bet is definitely going to commit you. Unless you made some really sick, tiny bet. But what, I don't know what good that's going to do us. Yeah, this is an awkward spot. But when you downsize bets in those spots, like, they have to be worried that you're pretty nutted and that they you're see have your it a stack, lot, yeah, yeah, and they see that you put in already. You know, at that point, it's going to be over thirty <coughs> percent of your stack in the middle, even if you did severely downsize. Yeah, yeah. so this is a weird spot. Is yeah, it, I wasn't thrilled with it from the get go, but I felt like he's opening too wide for me to just fold this spot too. Right, and a shove would just be such an overbet that it's kind of it's just bad because yeah. you're getting called by his nutted hands and just because he's Russian and has been raising a lot doesn't mean he never has anything right <laughs> he can have, you can have cards too yeah alright fortunately he can't have it so I three bet ace jack off to 3500 he calls flop queen eight deuce rainbow just what I was hoping yeah, for yeah perfect flop for our hand alright um he checks I bet 3k my sizing is Fine, I think for this spot, I think that's right around what my sizing should be at the stack depth on that texture. Yeah, so now sixty five hundred of our twenty thousand is in the middle. Yeah, just, that's exactly what we wanted with Ace Jack on Queen Eight Deuce yeah. when I'm already down to a third of a starting stack in the biggest tournament. Yeah, did you so did you feel like you had a decision between C betting and checking back, or did you feel like this is just a, you have to because you you've already gotten involved with the three bet you really have to fire again there aren't that many good turns for me to check back and continue on right and so checking like back is giving up right? yeah. yeah it's mostly giving up and i still have a range advantage on this flop i think and it's a dry enough board where if it's a queen nine x flop i'm going to be a little more inclined to check back queen eight deuce i feel like there's a lot of like bad gut shot type hands that, since I'm so shallow, may fold out even though they would call if they, we were deeper. Yeah, because they have more implied odds, of course. So right, yeah, implied odds and also bluff equity in that you know when they're going to expect that there will be more spots where I'm going to check back turn and fold to a river bet, whereas my range is going to be a little bit tighter to be three betting and c betting in this spot off twenty k. We're in such a weird spot. I hate the stack size. This is to me the hardest. You know, like I still, I'm old school, so I still think it like in terms of M. You start this hand with an M of like 13, 12 or 13, and it's just, you know, well, I mean, you probably count big blinds, right? Like how many big blinds do you start this hand with? I count M when I get you a do. little bit shorter than this. I don't count M when I'm above 10 because I'll never shove more than an M of 10. And there's very, very few situations where I'll shove an M of 10. So I don't tend to think about that till M is sub 10. Okay. Uh, I started the hand with 33 bigs. So it's 33 big blinds or an M of 12 or 13. So you, that's interesting what you said because we actually talk about M a lot on this, on this uh, podcast because I've sort of tried to rekindle people's love of M just due to the <laughs> fact that – with these big blind uh, the M Renaissance, the Renaissance, it is time. M is, M is coming back in a strong way 
because with the big blind ante, your your SPR pre-flop is almost as important now as your SPR on the flop. And that's all M is, right? It's just SPR before we get our cards. So, yeah, I've been I've been pushing hard to get Whoa, M back. Oh, man. Bringing M back. It's stacked pot ratio before we get our cards. That's all it is. Great. Right? So why do we care so I much about it? I think of it, it as uh, how many times you have, uh, like, I think of the thing as how much is in there before the cards are dealt as the M as a way to explain it to students, but I never thought of it as stack to pot ratio pre. But it is. <laughs> That's exactly what it is, Fair right? Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong. <laughs> Obviously, I'm very passionate about M. I can see that. Rest in peace, Paul McGrill. All right, so uh, we are in a spot here, no matter whether we're counting big blinds or M, this is just a weird stack to have this hand against this opponent in this tournament. And now we have the flop we didn't want. And where it's just good enough to see bad. Right. Like right. it's we don't really have equity, but it's like just good of enough of a flop for us to want to just see bet. Maybe I should see bet bigger. I don't know. It's close. Um, well, you'll talk me through depth, I think it's Talk it's me through why you might see bet bigger. What would that do for uh, us that three thousand doesn't? If I see bet small and he peels a gut shot and I have to give up check back brick turns and fold to a bluff on the river instead of getting him to fold out some of those hands that are otherwise going to basically float. I mean, it's not like a zero equity float, but if he calls flop with a hand like 10-9, jack-9, jack-10. Do you think he has all those hands? It's generally going to... The suit of varieties he made. He peels all those hands. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think he's ever going to have the offsuit varieties, but I think that it makes sense that if he he's, I think he's definitely going to open them, and he's most likely going to peel a three bet, especially because I didn't did size a little it bit that small. Big. Yeah, right, right. Okay, I agree. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, and then if you bet bigger now, you can just be more sure to get rid of those hands and get them out of there. All right. Yeah, so, but if I go any bigger than I did, my stack size is going to get significantly less than pot instead of being pretty much exactly pot. Yeah, so making the bet you made sets you up for a pot-sized bet basically on the turn. Right. Okay, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that going bigger really does that much more. I mean, he's got to see, like, even if he has the, that gut shot, suppose he has, like, a jack-9 suited, it's a rainbow flop, so, like, sure, he could pick up a little more equity on the turn without, you know, hitting his gin card, but still, he's going to be, he's he's only eligible to win another, what do you have, like, another 13K, 13K. so it, it's a really bad call, I think. Yeah. If you have a queen, it's a horrible call. Right, my range is, like we said, going to be fairly tight in this spot. I'm not going to be getting out of line too often, three-betting off a 33-big blind stack. No, why would you? Especially in this tournament. Yeah, this is the one tournament where I'm going to be less inclined to do it. So, I see bet 3k he calls. Turn is a 10. I think it brings a backdoor flush draw. And the jack-9 got there, too. (laughs) Yeah, so he checks, and I have an interesting spot. Yeah, because now we have a little more equity. Obviously, that's a it's not a bad card for us, assuming he doesn't have Jack Nine. Uh, do I bet again? I don't know. To me, when I put this many chips in already, and my opponent's been this passive, I mean, he's now called three times. You know, check. 
he called pre he, he checked and called now he's checked again I probably I probably stick my stack in here I this pot just means too much to us now based on how much is in there compared to what we have and, and our position in the tournament what are you about halfway through day one yeah yeah right so, around there yeah I don't so know. That was the interesting part is that I had a lot of things running through my mind on the turn, obviously. Oddly enough, I had a similar spot where I bluff shoved Ace Jack with 37 or 38 players left in the PCA main event um, in almost the exact same spot against Tom Hall. Bringing back memories, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I got, like, this weird sense of deja vu because, like, Tom had, like, side-called with King Queen in that spot. <laughs> and I'm like, am I in the same goddamn room where that happened? <laughs> like, it's not just, like, a hand that I played that's stuck in my mind. It's, like, I, it's, it's the same damn yeah, series and building. Same. Yeah, uh, Twilight Zone Obviously, music. I'm not like superstitious. Right, uh, right. It's just a horrible idea to be superstitious in poker. So I didn't let it, that affect me too much. But the thought crossed your mind. The memories came rushing back. We know. We, we all know. We've all been there. Put it that way. It really did. But then also, if we kind of break down his range a little bit, the worst hand I really expect him to have is like 8-9 suited, maybe. So even that may come up with a call for a pot size bet where he has a pair and a gutter and he thinks that I may be bluffing with ace king or ace jack. And you obviously could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know that, but we know that. Yeah. So, yeah. And very often he's going to have a hand like a queen that he's obviously just going to call with for a pot size bet. He's going to have some like jack 10, 10, 9 hands where he still might even call with those at this point. For yeah, well, now he bet. has a pair. He, well, he, he made the nuts with jack 10, with jack, jack 9, nine yeah. and he's got a pair and a gut shot with jack 10. Obviously, he's I not just, pulling that, yeah. So, you know, when we factor tournament life into it, you know, I'm in position. It's not like I'm going to check and have to face a bet. I'm in position so I can just check back, take a free card, and still have a relatively workable 22 big blind stack. It's not hopeless, right, yeah. Right, so this of all tournaments, my tournament life means so much. It's a freeze out, it's a one of a kind 25k that there may never be a softer 25k in my life. Maybe not. And I'm not opposed to grinding a short stack. I'm never the guy who's going to punt or give up. A couple of my early smallish tournament wins live were after I had two or three big blinds left. So it taught me early that there really should never be any give up in you in these things. So I, I'm i not afraid of nursing a 22 big blind stack. I'm not afraid of jamming it in there if I think I'm going to get them to fold often enough. I'm not it's just it's a sticky spot where I feel like it's ironic that I finally have some equity we're down to a pot size bet but I don't think it's quite enough to justify risking my tournament life here with so little fold equity where it might cycle off a pair gutter combo right so you chose to check it back I checked back rivers and offsuit ace oh so we finally made a pair yeah and he shoves well I mean, come on. We've got a third of our stack in there, and we finally get the the, the ace. But are we ever good? 
What does he have? What is he bluffing with? Yeah, Why right. is he bluffing? Right. Why is he bluffing? What does he have? Weird car for him to suddenly bluff on. Yeah. I mean, when you have checked back on the turn, you've basically told him, I don't have a hand that I'm ready to to put all my chips in with yet, which would immediately, in my mind, as, as the villain, I would think, well, then Matt probably has an ace. What else does he have that he's not betting now? Maybe a pair of fives or something, right? <laughs> yeah, like five, some other janky hand right. where I flopped a naked gutter, like bottom pair, or not bottom pair, but like second pair or something. Yeah, like something like that. Gappers. Right, so like you, you took a where... shot with a seabed on the flop, but now you're giving up. Yeah, but oh, so brutal. my thought process was a combination of you know, it's my tournament life in PSPC. It's a weird river for him to be bluffing. Why would he be bluffing? Because also, he's Russian. Right. But also, you have to consider your own range in the spot. So, you know, how high up am I on my own range? How often am I really going to be able to show up with a better hand here? If I th- three bet. I guess some of the time... No, if I have ace-10, I'm shoving turn. Right. I could Maybe I could have ace-8 and not shove turn, then improve on the river. I'm not going to check back sets with a pot size bet when the turn is a card that brings... So many straight yeah, draws. Yeah, a bunch yeah. of straight draws, yeah. plus a flush draw. Right. So... Yeah, you capped your range in a way by checking back on yeah. 4th Street. Yeah, it's hard. Unless I have the nuts, it's kind of hard to check back the turn. I could check back some like sets and two pair combos and get tricky there uh, some percentage of the time, but it's going to happen less so since the turn is a little bit more of a coordinated card and going to make it a little more dangerous to check back. Yeah, it brought so, a flush draw, and it's it's getting so into that, you know, the kind of straights people like to try to make. I don't think you're going to be checking back a set very often. I guess you would just because you have to balance, but do you have to balance in a tournament like this? Um, No, balance is sort of overrated in a lot of these spots live, especially against opponents that you're never going to play with again. I'm way more careful about balancing yeah. online against regs or against people that I'm, I know are paying attention that I play with regularly live. Right. Some guy um, we don't recognize from Russia. Yeah. Uh, right. In a lot of spots. Okay. So, I... Uh, but, I, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily just about balance, though. It's also about figuring out which hands that I need to bluff catch with because I won't show up at the river with much better often. So, like... If we're going to pick a hand to bluff catch with, something that blocks jack nine is also going to be better to bluff catch with than something that doesn't. So actually, ace jack becomes a better bluff catcher. A better bluff catcher. It makes better, sense. I would rather fold ace king and call with ace jack on the river than. Right, because you don't block the jack nine with ace king, obviously. Okay. Well, yeah, so that is an argument for calling. Yeah, so we're kind of hoping that there's some 7-8 suited, 9-8 suited, 9s, 10-9 suited type hands that he's turning into a bluff now because he's afraid that I rivered an ace, but that he knows that there's a decent chance he can get me to fold one pair. 
He also doesn't have to risk too much of his stack to do right. so. Right. You said he started with 70K and we only right. started with 20. So, yeah, it could just be a case like, well, even if Matt has something, is he willing to go with it now that he checked back the turn? Which, I don't know. I mean, I think given all of this, it's it's better to, if, if you want to have a bluff catching range, which of course you do. I think it's, it's required. It's yeah, it's have better. to. So of course you need that's to have. That's not just. That's not like just like a, a game theory and a balance concept and something you have to do against good players. It's just something to keep yourself in check and to make sure that you know. Okay, well, I guess if I'm going to get to the river with all these better bluff catchers, I can just use them and I can fold this one because. But when you, it, it's it's to help yourself analyze things in terms of, I guess I should take this top x number of hands and call with it and or and the ones with the blockers need to be considered as well but it's it's it goes beyond the balance concept to be your own way of just keeping track of what hands are too good to fold because you you while it's while it's possible with the board texture to have x number of better hands in reality your own range will make it so that you only have x number of hands and it becomes more important as you're playing against good players, but it isn't like it isn't one of the concepts that only works against the game theory perfect animals the and the GTO super high wizards, rollers right? Yeah, yeah. It's just something that you need to do to be able to be like, eh, you know what? Like, I'm never going to have a better hand than this in this spot, so therefore I'm kind of required to call. Otherwise, I don't have a call range, and you need to make sure that you're not. You know, so exploitable that you're never going to be able to call in a particular spot. Right. So you can't always check back on the turn, planning to always fold every river, <laughs> obviously. And this particular river makes this hand so interesting and tricky because it does give us a pair, but it's a pair that's good often. How often? Uh, this pair of aces is going to be good what percentage of the time? ballpark um, I'm going to want to pray that the answer was 33 <laughs> because we're getting 2 to 1 <laughs> how'd you guess <laughs> that, is the, that is the million dollar question uh, um, and we don't know the answer right that's a theory question because we, we can't pinpoint the exact answer but it's, yeah. it's, do you think it's around there though do you think it's around 33 which would make my call break, break even, even, not worth it, in a fold because of tournament considerations and the value of your last chip in tournaments. Uh, I called and he had Jack Nine, which was awesome. It was really, it was a fun way. Oh, I thought you said we blocked Jack Nine. He can't have that. Yeah, God, turns out yeah. the blocker theory just like put the kibosh on my PSPC. Oh, um, oh, so that was I, your bust out hand. That, yeah, that okay. was. Oh, I man. was like, hey, hey, what do I want to talk about on this podcast? Let's talk about a hand that I played awesome and looked really, really cool and smart. Oh, wait, no. Let's talk about a hand where I called off a bluff catcher on the river and was wrong for all the money <laughs> in one of the biggest tournaments of all God damn time. So if you weren't already depressed <laughs> thinking about <laughs> all the other things we discussed already, now we have this to go to bed on. Um, go do some volunteering. You'll feel better about your situation. I didn't take too much time to feel bad about myself. Yeah. I literally 
spent the next hour or two after I busted PSPC texting everyone, getting Negreanu to agree to do this charity roast in December that we want to do. So excited to work on this. And it, it, it's why I'm doing what I do. It's, it's so much better to be putting your time and energy into something. And that's why this is becoming more and more of a job for me and not travel outside Vegas as much. I gave up my Borgata sponsorship this year because I, or last year starting, um, January 1st of last year, because I knew I was going to not want to travel as much if I was focusing on CSOP. You know, I'm putting together a team and a network that is going to be able to run the best charity poker tournaments ever and try to be able to do it for more and more nonprofits that deserve it and give them the, the kind of network and system and the the best practices and making sure that you run a tournament with integrity that's fun that is still going to raise a lot for the beneficiary charity so many times people probably just think that it's just like a regular poker tournament like we're there's donor relations marketing like the organization and planning of things with the gaming control board who wants to nitpick about something new just to keep their bosses happy <laughs> like it's they called find, they find a new little thing to worry about every year and we it's always called event like planning for a reason yeah it's yeah. it's it's a backbreaking amount of work i never had any clue yeah. that like there's these are just you know, a huge charity fundraiser that happens to have a poker tournament attached to it. And so I've suddenly gotten myself into this whole thing of event planning where I just wanted to run some poker tournaments on the side, but um, there's like things I learned from Savage, from regular tournaments. There's things I learned from other little uh, other charity events that I go to. And we're just kind of just trying to put together the, the absolute best system for running these things as effective as possible while having as much fun as possible. Well, that's what I plan to do on January 26th at the Borgata. That's right. So uh, everybody <laughs> come. We're going to have as much fun as possible. We're going to make as much money as possible for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, which I used to do something called the Mathathon. Uh, back You're in the day, you that. remember Mathathon? That's an old school. <laughs> that used to be a thing. Like they have a telethon, they have Mathathon, which benefited children, uh, St. Jude's Children nice. Research Hospital. So I'm very familiar with it, and I remember that they would make us watch videos in school, like of all these sick kids, and be like, "This is why you should do the Mathathon." And I was like, "Hey, I'm good at math. I'll do it." <laughs> I was the first one to volunteer. So I love St. Jude's, and that's a big selling point for me why I want to get involved and do it. Um, and I, I got to say, Matt, thank you so much, not only for just doing the podcast, but for being so candid and uh, sincere and not trying to paint that Instagram perfect picture of your life <laughs> or even of how you played the poker tournament. Um, it, it's really refreshing to meet uh, an extremely successful person who is so grounded in reality. And uh, it's a, an honor and a privilege to uh, get to spend all this time talking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. We'll see everybody at Borgata, January 26th. Uh, what's the website again? CharitySeriesOfPoker.org. All right. And also follow Matt on uh, on Twitter. He's Matt. Bad idea. No? Bad. Don't? Are you going to retweet Phil Helmuth again? Oh, God. <laughs> No, I think we're done with that storm for now. Just wait until my blogs come out talking about me getting a salary and everyone yeah. flaming me for that when yeah. I'm making 
30 bucks an hour after taxes and haters gonna hate i'm gonna feed my baby yeah (laughs) yeah oh by the way are you are you still looking for um students for your coaching you mentioned that you of course i what if somebody wants to get in touch about that yeah, you can email me at mattstoutpoker at gmail.com. I do a lot of private coaching, and I've had a lot of success with my students. Aside from doing some coaching with a couple different November Niners, I also have a friend named Bill Jennings, who's a 52-year-old retired Wall Street trader who's got about $1.2 million in caches. He had fifteen grand in caches and was down a lot of money when I started coaching. And now he's crushing. Um, <laughs> he chopped WPT Bellagio heads up for a million dollars with Kevin Eister. And, uh, you go, Kevin Jennings! It was, or, yeah, it was pretty absurd. He, uh, I don't... Uh, he, uh... Results not typical with him, but uh, you know I've had a few different people that have gone pro or transitioned to semi-pro, including the hedge fund manager, aside from him. So uh, I really have fun kind of taking people and helping the, helping them guide them to the right training sites. I don't, I'm not going to discourage people from watching training videos and stuff, but you also it's good to have a one-on-one coach who goes through your hand histories with you figures out if you're applying the concepts you're learning from videos correctly and they'll just kind of take your pick you apart from top to bottom see what your level of tolerance is for how much you can be berated and then just kind of break you down as a poker player and fix everything that's wrong and just keep pounding it away until you can't get the voice of me out of your head just like i can't get andrew brown's head out of (laughs) a voice out of my head when i play plo now like the things that he taught me is are just like burned in there and if i'm like trying to make one mistake and like make one call pre-flop with a hand that i'm not supposed to i'm just like i hear him on my shoulder like reciting a rule that clearly <laughs> states i can't call with this, can't call with this stuff like that and like I, it takes several hours but i do i take it really really seriously and personally and i i've had a lot of success with a lot of my students well you clearly know your stuff and uh you're very good at explaining things and i don't know what you charge for coaching but whatever it is i'm sure it's worth every penny so if anyone out there is interested hit him up matt stoutpoker at gmail.com and we look forward to seeing everybody at the Borgata for the big charity series of poker event the night before the big uh, WPT Borgata Winter Open uh, this month January 26th Saturday night be there or uh, be something else I'm going to say something (laughs) oblong be there or be oblong because it doesn't rhyme and I like that so for Matt Stout who so generously donated his time and energy to this for us tonight and for everyone here in the Bahamas and of course everyone at my favorite website tournamentpokeredge.com I'm Clayton Fletcher thank you so much for listening
Love nobody. Yeah. 